Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You and your fan, aren't you? Yeah, I fucking love Anya, man. Are you joking? There's nothing to love. It's, it's noise. It's like listening it's to good bath music. the sea. It's lovely in the bath. Right, here we go in. All right. Stop That's that. Enya. That's Anya. Stop that immediately. God. Welcome to Upfront. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. What a week to be an Arsenal fan. First, they beat Bayern under the lights at the Emirates. Then they come back against their title rivals, Man City. We discuss how the bloody hell they managed it. Plus, Chelsea's dramatic Champions League quarterfinal and a lot of media outlets have ghosted the fact that Coventry will be exiting the championship. And French football journalist Theo Trude joins us to discuss big changes in the France national team as one Reynard arrives and another returns. Ooh la la, that was lovely. Arsenal, what an incredible four days it has been. Not only have they beaten title rivals Man City 2-1 on Sunday, just days after beating Bayern Munich 2-0 and heading through to the semi-finals of the Champions League on Wednesday. What a beautiful, clean sweep of the week. I mean, Rach, first off, we've got to touch on the Champions League game. Uh, I mean, amazing. Just absolutely amazing. You were there. What was it like to be front and centre amongst the action as Arsenal tore apart Bayern? It was wet. Uh, it was torrential <laughs> rain from pre-match right through. So that was slightly unpleasant. But thank God for the football because that was amazing. They obviously came into this game 1-0 down. Um, and I think a lot of us felt like they should have won that away leg. But they came in with confidence. They've really made the Emirates their home. Um, a really good crowd as well for uh, a midweek fixture. Um, I think it was 20,000 or something like that, or yeah. 19,000, which is a record for a Champions League fixture for Arsenal. Um, so that in itself was impressive and created a good atmosphere. But they played some lovely football and could have beaten Bayern by more than two. Um, I think, and they limited to Bayern to so, so few chances. I'm not even sure they had many on target, um, which in, in itself is impressive. Um, it was one of those games, though, afterwards, you thought, amazing they're through but at what cost? Because it looked like they'd lost both Kim Little and Katie McCabe. Kim Little going off really early. And I tell you what, when I saw her limp off, I thought this is going to be difficult for Arsenal now to, to win this match. That was a squeaky bum moment. And it? it didn't seem to phase them at all. Um, and then, yeah, of course, Katie McCabe going off after, I think it was just after the 19th minute, and she looked in serious pain. And she's a tough girl. She doesn't, she may roll around a bit and dive a bit, but when she's down like that, you kind of think, okay. It's a worry. Yeah. And she ended up in a boot. She was flying around the pitch on crutches afterwards. So we were all a bit concerned about that. Um, and everyone thought it was a significant injury. Um, and then, just like Jesus, she rises from the dead. <laughs> um, someone obviously lit a candle at home in Ireland for her because she rocks up against Manchester City uh, and not only puts in a player of the match performance but scores an absolute trademark Katie McKay belter. Um, so yeah, what a week for her. 
I mean, out of the two strikes, you've got the Katie McCabe goal there. You've got the Frieda Marnham strike, which is set up in the most beautiful way. I mean, that Leah Williamson assist is just, it's a thing of beauty. I mean, if you were going to pick one of those to be goal of the year, which one would it be? Frieda Marnham. Really? Yeah, that was an absolute beautiful goal. Not just the strike, but as you say, the build-up. It was a lovely team goal. Barely any backlift. Rifled it into the roof of the net. Unbelievable goal. I mean, Katie McCabe's goal was brilliant, but it was trademark Katie McCabe. We've mm. seen her do it before. I think that Freedom Man and one I could watch on repeat. It was a thing of beauty. Both were a thing of beauty. I mean, good luck choosing that for your goal of the month, Arsenal, because that's just killer. Um, but we've got to touch now on you know Arsenal-Man City, the actual game itself. I mean... A classic Man City start, Bunny Shaw finishing off a passing pattern, a beautiful passing pattern uh, with uh, with a header from a Kelly Cross. Lauren Hemp, a missed opportunity there. I think that's going to come back and haunt them. That could have been a, a completely different game, I think, if, if she'd have belted that before before half time. Yeah, I think first worth flagging that Arsenal did climb to, to second and then, of course, Chelsea played that evening and, and bumped them back down to third again, which is what we've been seeing throughout these last few weeks is just like, places just shifting up and down and up and down and you think you're there but then you're here Um, yeah actually I thought Manchester City played really well I thought they played some of their best football in the first half Um, so I I can imagine being quite frustrating as a Manchester City fan to see them play like that and lose Um, they absolutely should have put the game to bed in the first half Mm. Um, Bunny Shaw obviously fantastic that was a classic Manchester City goal again a really nice build up play and a proper team goal you cannot give someone like Bunny Shaw that much space but still the header was absolutely beautiful. Um, I thought the way Manchester City press, they've mastered it really well and seem to be able to exploit Arsenal trying to play out from the back. They always seem to have an extra player. I think they kind of push their full backs up and it allows like a Laura Coombs to step up and and it always feels like they have an extra player in that press, which Arsenal really struggled with mm. um, in the first half. So that's something that they do really, really well. But it also meant that in terms... Lauren, Lauren Hemp did have a number of opportunities on that wing because it seemed like Moritz was getting pulled across to mark the extra midfielder and she had a number of times where she was just absolutely free to take a strike and yeah, she two of those she you know easily could have scored one of them was an absolute sitter um, so I can oh, I can feel for them in that respect um, but yeah, I guess then the way Arsenal came out in the second half what did you think of that? I thought it was a, it was a different game for them. Um, I think they were kind of buoyed on by the fact that actually they still... Well, every, both teams have a lot to play for. And I think that's the beauty now about these top of the table battles is that you actually don't... You can't call it. You can't say either way how it's going to go. But credit to Arsenal stepping it up. I mean, Marnham firing the ball home after the goal mouth scramble. And I think that seemed to just escalate the confidence that they had. And then going on to, yeah, that, what, 13 minutes later, that Katie McCabe strike, um, you know, going from, like you said, being pretty much like limbless at the uh, at the end of the buying game to to then scoring that. And you can see what it meant to the Arsenal bench, to the Arsenal fans, to the squad. Um, obviously, she sort of picked up that short corner, fired it into the top shot. It was just, it was unsavable. Um, yeah, I thought it was beautiful. But... I mean, we've got to talk about the other negative side of McCabe's performance because a little bit of a brain fart there with what happened with Chloe Kelly and the throw-in. I mean, what on earth? Why? It's just stupid. It just seems like a really unnecessary thing to do. She'll miss the next game now. Well, that's the thing. Well, I was having a look. It's quite interesting to see what the next game would have been. really hard to tell. Because it should have been Manchester United on the 23rd of April. But because they've now progressed through to the Champions League semi-finals and those fixtures have got to take place, 
that's now been postponed. It now looks like the next fixture uh, and the next fixture again against Everton has also been moved due to the second leg of the Champions League. So the next fixture now looks like it's against Leicester on the 7th of May unless a game is scheduled in between there. And to be fair, this is I think this is a very lucky turn of events for Arsenal because if that is their next WSL fixture... A game against Leicester is exactly what you want McCabe to be missing out on out of all the fixtures that you could possibly have. Yeah, I think a game will be rescheduled before then. It would be fair for that because, to Because, yeah, place. it'll have to go into a midweek at some point and it wouldn't seem right to just sit on two more fixtures and push them beyond May. Um, I don't know what the rules are in terms of if they have to be rescheduled in order. I'm not sure. Mm. So I don't know how that's going to work, but... It, it, I still potentially think the next game will end up being Manchester United and for her to have gotten a yellow card for something astu- and she does that she loses her head like we all know that she's like an aggressive player and we, we want that we want the fire and the passion but like the stupid stuff is just a bit silly like if you're going to get a yellow card like if she's going to get a yellow card against Manchester City you expect her to get it for like putting in a tackle or a last ditch tackle or whatever yeah, like understandable. fine but to do something stupid like that, you know, even Chloe Kelly was a bit like, I mean, to be fair, I was standing in front of the ball. But like, just, yeah, stupid. Uh, I mean, it could have been more costly for them. Um, yeah, cause she then had to play the rest of the game on a yellow card, which is, people worry about that. You know, normally when you, there's certain players, when they get a yellow card early, you're a bit like, oh, Jesus. Like when Stanway got it in the final of the Euros, we all kind of sat there going, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, stuff like that is just silly. But if we look back at that second half, I think credit to how Arsenal came out and tactically changed because I think the Arsenal of old maybe would have limped into that second half a little bit because they looked leggy, they looked tired from the Bayern game. I thought City were kind of running them ragged and creating a lot of space. And in the second half, Arsenal came out much more aggressive um, and they kind of pushed City back and they started pressing City much better and also closing off the spaces that City had been exploiting in the first half. And I just don't think City were able to react quick enough to that. Um, So I think hats off to them for figuring that out because, you know, you would have forgiven them for kind of just sitting back and trying to ride out to a, to a one 0 loss because of all the, everything that had gone on before, massively. But I do ha- I do now have a few concerns now about Arsenal. I think obviously with the the yellow card and McCabe that that playing a factor. Obviously a couple of injuries and niggles sort of in and around the squad. But it for me the the biggest factor that's going to impact how the rest of the season runs is this run of fixtures. I mean they've got the five WSL games left. They've got these big Champions League games left and obviously if they progress through to that obviously the Champions League final is going to be on their mind so yeah there's a lot of fixtures to cram in that's a lot of legwork to be doing in the next six weeks for them yeah I think Arsenal and Manchester United have the hardest run in because both of them have to play one of those top four teams yeah two sorry two of those top four teams whereas Chelsea and Man City only have to play a top four team once um yeah this is what I, I put down that I kind of it was brilliant but part of me wonders if it will backfire slightly. You know, it's a lot of work. It's been a tiring week um, for Arsenal. They're losing players, as you say, ahead of key games. Um, they'll have belief, definitely, which will be huge for them. I just don't know if it'll be enough. That's what my concern would be. And also a massive shout out for Chelsea, who also managed to progress into the Champions League semi-final by the skin of their teeth. I mean, as Fixtures go, as games go, you couldn't have asked for any more drama. There was penalty calls. There was Lauren James going down. There was uh, a fantastic penalty by uh, Mara Mieldi. There was a VAR check. There was extra time. There was 
and catching Berger and pulling out the most wildly of penalty saves. I mean, Rach, again, you were there. It's a game that I would have given everything to have been there for. Um, you said that fans were actually leaving the ground, having thought that, um, yeah, Chelsea were, were out of it. And uh, and I've got to admit, I was also just about to turn off the laptop and then, boom, it exploded. Yeah, um, an absolutely ridiculous game at the bridge. Not the best 90 minutes, I'm not going to lie. Mm. It wasn't um, the most exciting. Um, I thought, you know, Chelsea struggled a little bit, understandably, again, like Arsenal, um, a little bit leggy. They've had a lot of football didn't create a huge amount of chances. They created a couple in the in the first half, but it just didn't feel like they were going to get a goal in the second half. Um, and Leon were starting to exploit. And then, of course, Ada Hegerberg came back on and you just felt like it was going to be her night. Um, so, yeah, I, we all, I think, thought Chelsea were down and out. Um, but to go to extra time, and then, and then for Leon to score an extra time, you kind of thought, okay, um, this is not the good night for Chelsea. But bloody hell, Maren Mielda, like, she has serious ice in her veins um, Nordic queen to be able to step up and then on top of that she had to deal with the Lyon players surrounding the referee she was all set to take the penalty and suddenly there was like encroachment and we were all wondering what the hell was going on it and was a lot surrounding the referee she had to pick the ball back up again step away the referee took an absolute age to sort it um, and yeah she steps up and absolutely rifles at home crowd goes wild you know there was about 10 seconds left played and we were going to penalties and suddenly Chelsea had a lifeline and and then who steps up to take the first penalty Maren Bloody Mielder unreal and scores it um, yeah it was pretty incredible brilliant night as well for AKB um, who of course recently has gone through um, cancer treatment again uh, and come through the other side and you know putting in performances like that at the bridge is incredible um, and yeah like I was I was standing near the, the two teams where they were lined up at the halfway line and Leon were just like poor Wendy Renard couldn't look she was bent over facing the other direction. She had teammates like rubbing her back and telling her it's going to be okay and it wasn't okay. Um, I'm pretty sure she missed her penalty. Yeah, she did. Uh, not great. Um, so yeah, it was a pretty ridiculous match um, getting through in, in crazy fashion and yeah, Chelsea were just absolutely understandably delighted and I actually think, we disagree on this I think, but I feel like this is the boost that they needed for the rest of the season. Um, I think it was obviously progressing through to the Champions League semi-final is obviously going to be a confidence boost but I do now feel like I mean they've already struggled with injuries and Emma Hayes has been banging on about how much the fixtures have played her and and I do think this is now another sort of distraction for for the WSL title um but we'll have to wait and see I mean Chelsea up against Barca in the semi-finals uh, of the Champions League it's kind of like a we meet again Barca uh, from last year, obviously, I mean, they probably don't want to talk about that too much. There's probably a, a slight overhang of PTSD there um, for them. But yeah, I think, um, I mean, we could see an Arsenal-Chelsea yeah, Champions League I think final, dare I say it. It could happen, but I think it's going to be very difficult about Bar- for Barcelona. I think the benefit here, obviously, is in the final, they just had one leg, whereas now they get to play them across two legs. They get to play at home first, which I think is really important because... I think if you had to go away to Camp Nou first, you know, it's very hard to keep a game tight there and mm. you could be coming back with a 2 or 3-0 deficit. Whereas at Stamford Bridge, they're obviously going to work really, really hard on keeping it close. Um, and that makes the second leg an entirely different story. I think it's going to be really difficult. But, you know, and the fact, I mean, let's look at the fact that we've got two English teams uh, through, which is incredible. And I think, I think I'm right in saying this, it's the first time we've had two teams from the same city in the semi-finals of the Champions League. Oh, I have to fact check that. Which is, you know, is crazy in itself. But 
it's a brilliant thing, brilliant thing for English football. Um, but also, I think when you look at the teams that are left, no team has had the perfect Champions League so mm-hmm. far. Uh, Barcelona lost in the group stages to Bayern. Wolfsburg picked up two draws to Roma and Slavia Praha, who they obviously would have been expected to beat. Um, I think actually Chelsea were probably the only team team who did get through quite seamlessly mm. um, in the end. So yeah, I think it's it's the best chance for them, of course. Um, but it's going to be so tough, and it's going to make for some very very tasty fixtures. Can you imagine a Chelsea Arsenal? Can you imagine it Champions would be League final? The I mean, most it'd be incredible like the thing. Fiftieth time they've met this year, it feels like, but. That what a fixture that would be. Well, you just, just know it's coming home to England, which would be amazing. I mean, that, I mean, the month or what, six weeks before like the World Cup kicks off, and you've got a fixture like I just uh, that would blow my mind. First time in history. Here we go. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We have a new team propping up the WSL table at the bottom. Brighton now in the relegation spot. Uh, I mean, a lot's being made of them being down there, Rach, but in my mind, I'm thinking they've still got those two games in hand. There's still a lot of fixtures left to play. There's only a point in it between them and Leicester. And Leicester, you know, they're not they're not finding a massive run of form. They had a few games that sort of went their way at the start of the year, but since then, haven't really done too much I mean are we sort of placing too much emphasis on Bryson being down there I 
I wouldn't say replacing... T- I mean, it is important, I think, for Leicester because it does show that anyone can get pulled in. I think if they'd remained dead bottom, you really can't say that anyone else is going to, you know, that it was it was likely that anyone else is going to go down. The fact that they've been able to pull themselves off at all this season says something. Um, Brighton's games in hand are Everton and Arsenal, so not easy fixtures. No. Um, but equally under Amy Merrick, they've had some tough matches to play. They've had to play Manchester City. They've had to play Manchester United. They've had to play Chelsea. So it's you're also kind of wondering, have we seen what this new Brighton can do really against the teams in and around them? Um, equally, all of these teams around the bottom, your Tottenham's, your Reddings, uh, your Leicester's, they all have to play each other again. So another really tough one to call. It is worrying for Brighton. Um, they've really struggled defensively, I think. Um, so yeah, I've, it's gonna it's not going to be nice mentally for them to be down there, even if they do have two games in hand. And for Leicester... Willie Kirk has come out and said, right, we're aiming now, we're looking at 10th. We're not thinking about the fact that we've gotten ourselves off the bottom and that we're no longer in the relegation spot. We want to try and move up. And the fact that it's so tight at the bottom, that could happen. Leicester beat Reading and they go above them. I have some concerns about Willie Kirk's comments. I think aiming for 10th is probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in my life. He's not aiming for 10th. It's like that's the next thing to look at rather than say, we're not looking over our shoulder, we're looking up. What, as in like aim of a 10th next season or the next couple of seasons? Yeah, cool. But right now, I think just avoiding championship. I think it's a better message to have in the dressing room. Let's get up to the next spot rather than let's try and avoid relegation. Like okay. it's a much more positive approach to matches, right? Fine, but you've just scraped this win. I mean, there was they only scored in the sixth minute of 12 minutes of stoppage time against Reading uh, to secure that win. In a game they dominated. In a game they did dominate, they did do quite well. They but need to start scoring. Now on 10 points, one ahead of uh, Brighton. The BBC are calling it the great escape, question mark, question mark from Leicester. Um, and Kirk, again, I think, you know, some of his comments, I, I do rate him and his ambition, um, saying that he wanted the team to embrace the pressure of the relegation zone. That feels like a more sensible comment to make. Um, they faced Chelsea and Arsenal in some of their last games alongside uh, West Ham, Liverpool and Brighton. Brighton have a fairly good run of last fixtures, only facing one of the top four Arsenal in the remainder of their games. Um, So, yeah, I think, um, to be honest, I think it's all going to be to play for in that last fixture. And weirdly enough, I mean, Brighton, whilst struggling in the relegation zone, are also in the semi-final of the FA Cup. So, (laughs) successes and also disaster in the same um, the same season for them, which is, which is interesting. Well, speaking of the championship, really, and the kind of way in which things are going at the bottom of the table, we've got to also touch on Coventry. Um, I mean, they're a side that entered the championship in the 2019-20 season and their battle for survival has been pretty much throughout their entire time that they've been in the championship. But they've now been confirmed as being uh, the relegated team into the FA uh, National League this year. I mean, the gap now is way too wide. Uh, they've got three games left, 10 points behind Blackburn Rovers. Has, um, that been start... con- has it been confirmed? I mean, there's three... I mean, nobody will say it. Yeah, I mean... It's ridiculous. I was, I was, I was, you were questioning it then. No, I was like... I'm like, what? I just, wait, no, when you say it's being confirmed, I'm like, has it? Because no one has come out and actually tweeted it, which I just find so... But It's like, if we don't speak it into existence, it's not real. Yeah, I think um, it's a weird one. I've not seen it reported in The Guardian, uh, The Times, Sky Sports, uh, none of the big sort of publications. The main championship channel. Yeah, and it just feels like, well, you know, Coventry are still, you know, part of the elite women's setup. Why has no one made big news of the fact that this squad is now relegated? This thing of just like not talking about it is very strange. I mean, they've been in the news quite a lot for a championship squad, Coventry. They obviously had, 
you know, some big financial issues. Uh, 2021, they were on the brink of collapse over Christmas and there were loads of concerns about the players and their contracts and whether they were going to be basically jobless. And then a new investor seemed to step in, someone from the tech industry, I believe, um, who seemed to sort of revamp the investment. They looked like they got a couple of wins under their belt. Um, and then towards the end of the season, obviously, it was a relegation battle between them and Watford. And they just scraped. They had a run of about nine wins that meant that they just scraped out of the relegation zone by by one point last season. And then this, this time, again, 2022 in December, same talks again. Uh, is the investment there a little bit shaky? No one really knew what was happening, uh, but seemed to sort of find some consistency. But they've just not been able to produce results this year at all um and it it does feel like it's been a long time in the making that they would they would go down to to the national side and i do feel like actually that's what the pyramid wants uh coventry's obviously not backed by a big men's premier league outfit and i think that is the sort of way that the the wsl the championship is is going what do you think it means for them what do you think their future looks like bleak uh, in one word, um, I mean, obviously they've got this investor. I don't know how long the investment is for, but I would imagine, given the fact that it is so hard to make a profit and to be a profitable side in a championship, in the WSL team, let alone a championship, let alone a National League side, um, I don't see that that, that investment is going to be sustainable. And therefore, I do have some serious concerns about the players and what's going to happen to their contracts, because I think a lot of those are on full-time contracts in between twenty to £30,000 a year. So, Unless there's a genuine, authentic investor who just wants to, you know, really rebrand and regrow the team again to make a, a big championship push, I, I, I see the team sort of flailing and going further and further down the National League. Do you think enough due diligence is done when it comes to investments? Um, because obviously, when they did get that investment, it came at the, you know, the the eleventh hour. Mm. They were almost at a, in a position to to be gone because they couldn't get someone to invest. Did that mean that maybe it got pushed through quickly or do you think enough due diligence is done if so much investment is put in but nothing's really seen? I have serious concerns about the due diligence process. I think there's a lot of um, people that are interested in WSL and championship sides at the moment because it is seen as the kind of on-trend thing to do. And I think when you... I think Coventry were in a difficult position because they didn't have a choice. It wasn't like they had time to really consider who's moral, who's ethical, you know, how how long-term is this investment? How genuine is it? Who is actually investing? Do they have a good background? It was literally, we either take this investment or the club collapses. So when you don't have a lot of time, I can understand that due diligence probably goes out the window. But I think for me, it felt like the FA maybe should have stepped in a little bit more then and thought... Okay, can we fund Coventry for the remainder of this year as a kind of emergency package um, and then see what the situation is next year? Sort of if the FA taken on a kind of administration role in an administrator role to see at the end of the season and make sure those players were protected. A lot of those players who don't even have the support of the PFA because the championship isn't covered by the PFA membership. So they don't have recourse to kind of the legal, um, you know, legal advice and um, advice on tap about, you know, player contracts and things like that. So I can understand Coventry just wanted to secure the the position financially for their players to make sure they had a livelihood, they could pay their mortgages and feed themselves and their families. But at the same time, you know, you can't, it, as a rush decision, it now looks like it, it could come back and bite them because I can't see that investment continuing once they're in the National League. And then, like, I'm not a business person, but it makes you question the idea of just having, like, one big investor. Mm. Because if one big investor fails, you fail. Whereas if you're kind of spread out across a, a number of investors you know, maybe there's less jeopardy 
if if one person can no longer afford to chip in. And then I guess when you talk about like due diligence and if if we're in a situation now in the women's game where it is still growing and it's a semi-professional league, some teams are professional, you know, do we need to think of longer term plans for clubs if they become financially unstable? Because it could be fair to say that it's harder to find investors for a product that is still in the in its infancy in terms of profit? Well, I think it's uh, it's almost a moot question in a way because if you've got a WSL and a championship that is entirely made up of uh, of squads that are backed by a Premier League outfit, the investment is secure. Uh, you know, Arsenal, Man City, Chelsea, all women's teams are all heavily reliant on the funding and the gifts that they get from their their main clubs. So, and if, for example, Arsenal perform really, really badly, they don't get a lot of ticket sales, um, you know, they don't sell as much T-shirts or whatever it is that they, they need to, then they always have the backing and that backup plan of Arsenal being able to step in and pay player contracts or pay for you know medical equipment or whatever it is or pitches. So I think that's the way it's going, that the, the WSL and Championship will be heavily reliant on their main clubs, but with a long-term view in the next 10 to 15 years to actually become profitable or sustainable by themselves. But for the foreseeable future, I mean, if you have a look at some of the WSL accounts that are coming out, um, they're sort of small, limited, very basic accounts you can find on Companies House there is still a lot of financial dependency on, on the main clubs. So, yeah, I think that we'll, we will continue to see that trend for a number of years. It's one to look at in the future whether we need clubs to be profitable before an independent club can prosper. But equally, if you look across at the NWSL, they're doing something very different mm. um, where they're creating their own independent clubs and it is working. So definitely one to tap into maybe further down the line, an interesting topic to discuss. But they're definitely, I mean, they're big investors. They're like the kind of like Serena's and the, you know. But you, you think England is the home of football. You know, it's not a big, but then equally. Serena Amer- Williams, by the way, not Wiegman. <laughs> America and sport in general is a whole different culture over there. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic. All right, next up, L'Equipe and France football journalist Theo Trude joins us for the lowdown on Hervé Renard's appointment as France's new head coach. Thank you for joining us, Theo. Really appreciate you being on the pod with us today. Corinne Diacre departed earlier in March and was finally replaced by Hervé Renard last week. Uh, I mean, what's the reaction been like in France, Theo? It is just as if chaos has given way to an infinite field of hope, like huge hope. Uh, the reaction was extremely positive and, above all, unanimous. All the media here in France agree that a new era is beginning and that this French team was in great need of it, you know. Uh, to summarize the situation, what this team clearly lacked uh, to win titles was cohesion, understanding between players, but also with the coach. And um, we have gone from Corinne Diacre, who was cold and distant with the players, to Hervé Renard, who has always been a coach close to his players in the past, and also an expert in the management. Um, to take an example, while Corinne Diacre decided to limit freedoms in the in the team, saying that we were not here to laugh when uh, training and playing, Hervé Renard just created a structure so that players who had become mothers could bring their babies to the centre of French football. Um, it allowed Amel Majri, a Lyon player with a nine-month-old baby, to return to the team. And uh, it's just an example, but 
even more importantly, Hervé Renard is used to complicated projects. Uh, you know, he just won the Africa Cup of Nations with Zambia and then with Ivory Coast, which was no longer used to winning at the time. And he won against Argentina with Saudi Arabia, which was amazing. And it's clear that this project in the French team is not easy at all, since everything has to be rebuilt after years of thinking about something else, something other than football. It really feels like this man is the right person for the job. Do you think with that renewed sense of hope that it brings a lot of pressure to Hervé? Like, or do you think it's a weight off and it'll be less pressure going into the World Cup because it's not far away? It's not pressure on Hervé Renard. It's pressure on the players uh, because the players are the ones who were requesting a change. And Hervé Renard is just the one coming in for a year. You know he signed a contract for a year until the, the next Olympics in Paris. So his role is just to give the collective unity and the mental strength that were, that were lacking um, to, to allow this team to win finally a title. I mean, you mentioned there, obviously, there's been sort of quite a lot of discontent, a lot of upset um, within the, the the squad. And obviously, you know, some of the players have been very vocal and very public about about that. But I just wanted to sort of get a bit more of a of a feel of what it was like to actually turn up for training, you know, go to those matches and feel that kind of the pressure of, of that environment under Diacre. I mean, how, how bad it, had it gotten for players to, to, to feel they had to make things public? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was constant, constant chaos. Uh, to, to go back with my sentence, it was constant chaos. Um, the team has been hit for, for years by these internal tensions. And the peak of it all is clearly during the 2019 World Cup at home in France, when players were crying in their room, crying in their room, um, as they were mistreated by the coach. Um, and it's not me saying this, but Amandine Henry, one of the, the team's leader at the time, um, and it was terrible. And the scar has never been closed since then. Uh, the situation was so unhealthy that even Sarah Bouadi, who was the, the first choice goalkeeper at this time, retired from international football. And she summed it up like no other. She said, I could bet my life that the French team won't win the Euros or the World Cup if Jack remains in charge. And guess what? She was right. Um, and there were conflicts with the Olympic Lyonnais players uh, that were Eugénie Le Sommer, Wendina Renard, uh, Amandine Henry, Amel Majri, many of them. And they were in a clash every single time. And they were not called up, even if they won the Champions League, like in 2022. And I didn't even mention that um, there was the Amrawi case, you know, which led to the custody of teammates Aminata Diallo um, mm-hmm. and it also divided the, dress- the dressing room and yeah it was constant pressure and it was not possible to think about football to think about ta- tactics it was not just just not possible to to think about something else so many potential talent talented players missing out um, and one of those players that almost missed out on on an upcoming world cup was uh, Wendy Renard who's obviously a key key player um, for the team She's returned to the squad now for this international break and um, has been reinstated as captain as well. How important is that looking ahead now and focusing on the summer? Uh, this, this is clearly vital. Um, I mean, 
when we talk about Wendy Renard, we are talking about the soul of this group. It's only pillar over the last five or ten years. And the proof is that her decision to withdraw from the, the French squad as a protest against the means given to the players, it led to the express departure of Corinne Jacques. Nothing could have done that. Um, it's just Wendy Renard. And everyone is following Wendy Renard. She's a leader in all areas. We are talking about one of the most successful players in history of football. Just that. And at uh, 32 years old, she's the link between the former glories, Eugénie Le Sommer, um, Amandine Henry, Amel Majri, of all the glories of this French team, and the new very promising generation um, with Marie-Antoinette Catoto, for example. And she has experienced everything with this team, with Diana. She has been there for over 10 years. And in reality, Hervé Renard had no choice but to appoint her as a captain. I feel like this, the soul of the French team, but a thorn in, in the English team side for a, a long time. I remember many years <laughs> when Wendy Renard would pop up in the last minute and, and get a goal against England. And England didn't beat them for something like 70 years, right, until 2017. So I still, I still love Wendy Renard. I have a soft spot for her. She's great. Very poetic of you there. Really okay. enjoyed that comment. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got to look ahead now to, to the World Cup and obviously the, the rain that Reynard's going to be picking up. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think obviously there's a there's a, a hope that, like you said, he's going to unify the players, get them all together, uh, so that this this is one of the this is a, a kind of a new era for them, like like you were saying. Um, but do you think there's any sort of questions about his capabilities? I know before, obviously, you know, his background, his career history has been very much in in men's football and and doing a, a really good job in men's football. But now, obviously, the transition over to to the women's game. Do you think there's going to be any sort of difficulties or challenges that that he's specifically going to be facing? No, there's absolutely no question about it. Uh, Hervé Renard has just proved throughout his career his ability to adapt to different football styles, uh, whether it was in France or in Asia or in Africa. And it must be said that the, the problem with the French team was not tactical at all. Hervé Renard um, has already congratulated Corinne Jacques for the work she's done. And uh, Hervé Renard should take on board of a large part of her tactical principles. Uh, I mean, the team is well known. It's a solid, well-organized 4-3-3 and uh, fast in attacking transitions. I mean, it's obvious. We know how France is going to play and it's going to be the same way as with Corinne Jacques. It's not going to change. What is going to change is the collective unity and the mental strength that the players are going to have. Final question. Maybe it's a difficult one, but what are the realistic expectations on France at this World Cup? The expectations from the media are not that high because of this. Uh, we expect that the World Cup may be a quarter-final, semi-final, which is pretty low for the, the potential of this team. Um, because if you just consider the whole picture with the, all the teams that are going to be playing at the World Cup, um, just tactical and technical potential, France is arguably the best team arguably uh, one of the best teams. Uh, other teams really should fear France because, as I said, um, this team was already good. But what was um, missing is that collective strength, mental strength. Uh, because when we were losing 1-0 to the US or to Brazil, we were just panicking. So yeah, the other teams really should fear France now. 
I love that. You heard it here first. Rach, what are you going to be up to this weekend? Where are you off to? What are you doing? Well, it is, of course, international break and we've got the finalissima at Wembley. Mm. Um, Lioness against Brazil on Thursday. So I will be there at Wembley. Looking forward to that one. And I will also be doing uh, the Matildas versus Scotland in Plough Lane on Friday. Um, so that should be a good fixture too. Lovely. I mean, I will see you there at the finalissima uh, on Wembley Way. It's going to be a massive throwback to, uh, to the Euros. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Upfront. If you've got any questions for us, tweet us at Football Ramble. Rach is at Girls on the Ball and I am at Morgie underscore 89. We will see you next week. Upfront is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.